Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. As Episcopalians, we are people of the book, by which I mean, of course, the Book of Common Prayer. The original was published in 1549 under the reign of Edward VI, following one of the most dramatic church fights in all of history. It included in its 356 pages many of the elements we find in the version we use today. There were prayers and services, the Psalms, and a a chart with appointed lessons for every Sunday. The next hundred years or so of prayer book history is messy, to say the least. The Book of Common Prayer was repealed and then restored, then abolished, and then restored again, depending on how the political winds were blowing. During those contentious years, there were fights about everything, from vestments to kneeling for communion. There were two bishops' wars, a civil war, the execution of a king, riots, and rebellions. Those who continued to use the prayer book when it was illegal to do so, or refused to use it when it was mandated, were faced with fines, expulsion, or a stint in the tower. Conflicts with the Scots, the Puritans, and the colonists tended to confuse things even more. Finally, in 1662, the Book of Common Prayer settled into being and is still used in England today. I'm betting the Queen has one on her night table. My point is that for all of the arguments over how to worship God for hundreds of years, the Book of Common Prayer has somehow stood its ground. The 1,001-page 1979 prayer book in your pew rack is, if you think about it, something of a miracle. Sure, it needs updating. Yes, it's complicated. But it is also generous to those of us who like to try new things and flexible enough to embrace the whole contrary lot of us. Here's what I mean. Some of you, and I know this because you've told me, some of you are so skeptical you have to cross your fingers to say the Nicene Creed, while others of you would stake your life on the truth of every single word. For some of you, right one is hopelessly quaint. For others, The Elizabethan language is the only way to worship. You may find the prayers beautiful or boring. 
Any given service may warm your heart or wear you plumb out. Our beliefs are vastly different. Our histories, interests, opinions, politics, commitments, problems, aspirations, all of them are different. And yet, here we are, bound together by, of all things, a book of prayers we hold in common. As Episcopalians, we have a shared language, which is no small thing in this broken world. And it is a rare thing, too. I've wondered, and I bet you have too, so many times over the last couple of years, I, you have wondered how in the world people, some of whom you know well and love dearly, how they can think the way they think. And this applies to just about any issue we can think of. It's like, I hear what you're saying, but you're not making sense. They are no doubt thinking the same thing about me. One commentator summed it up like this. Sometimes when we talk to each other, it's like we are talking different languages. We live in Babel. We work in Babel. We breathe Babel. We are children of Babel. Years ago, when my son was in high school, he was ready, getting ready to go out with some friends, and I was the anxious parent exhorting him to be smart, to make good choices, and blah, blah, blah. He interrupted me in mid-sentence. Mother, he said, a sure clue, since he always called me mom, that the battle was already lost. I have no idea what you're talking about. You might as well be speaking Mandarin Chinese. Babel in my own house. When Jesus left his disciples, he told them to wait and he would come, send the Holy Spirit to them. And so they waited. If you have followed the story, you will have noticed that up to this point, there have been no heroic deeds on the part of those disciples. They had to have known what happened to Jesus and that it could happen to them. And so they banded together and went into hiding. If that were the end of the story, there would be no such thing as the church. Maybe a great adventure with the man Jesus who went around doing good. But that would be all. The disciples on the morning of Pentecost were in no shape to go out and change the world. But then, in a moment, with a sound like a violent wind amidst tongues of fire, their lives were changed forever. What is so astonishing about Pentecost is that it is not a once-upon-a-time story. 
the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is an ongoing, never-ending account of God's refusal to give up on us. The spirit which hovered over the deep way back in Genesis, the spirit that overshadowed Mary to bring God into the world, the spirit that descended on Jesus in the Jordan River, the spirit who midwifed a book of prayers into being. That spirit has been given to us. Baptism is the sign that this is so. The good news, the best news, is that this spirit is no more bound by our limitations than it was bound by the limitations of those frightened disciples. Our prayer book says that the Holy Spirit is God at work and in the world and in the church even now. That statement doesn't exactly sizzle, but what it means is that God is at work despite the relentless violence of our world. Despite our fumbled attempts to do good, and despite the distractions that tempt us to do nothing. Despite the failures of the church, despite whatever, whatever we happen to think about who's eligible to receive the Spirit and who is not. I have a musician friend, her name is Ana Hernandez, who is a composer, arranger, workshop facilitator, author, and self-identified mischief maker. It is an apt description. In the summer of 2003, at the General Convention of the Episcopal Church, a church fight was brewing. Gene Robinson, the first openly gay priest to be elected bishop in a mainline denomination, was the flashpoint. He had already been elected bishop of New Hampshire, but before his consecration could proceed, a vote of deputies to the general convention, both clergy and lay folk, was required. That vote was a big deal, and everyone knew it. Tensions were running high. Anna was a part of the music team for the convention and was charged with providing music during noonday prayers for all of the lay deputies. She took that assignment to heart, and it was important to her to be able to offer a new, fresh piece of music that could help bring peace and goodwill into this charged setting. I'd been praying for weeks, she told me, but I couldn't come up with anything. As the time got closer, I got angry, and I kept yelling at God and getting nothing. She got through the first day of the convention using old tried-and-true favorites but for the second day, the day the approval of Jean Robinson's election would be voted on, she still had nothing new to offer. I looked all around, 
and I saw people standing around with their arms crossed. And I was thinking, what these people need to do is open their hearts. I walked up the steps to the stage, not knowing what I was going to do. And in that moment, I suddenly realized that what was needed was for me to open my heart. And as Anna stepped out onto the stage, a tune for those words, Open My Heart, came. I sang it as I was hearing it, she said. At first, she was the only one singing, but gradually others joined in until everyone was singing, Open my heart, open my heart, open my heart. They were singing together, three words floating on a simple melody. That night, the votes were cast, the outcome, as most of you already know, was in favor of Jean Robinson and the Diocese of New Hampshire, which in no way meant that the conflict was over. The conflict just escalated. The conflict wasn't over for the deputies present at the 2003 General Convention. It wasn't over for the Episcopal Church. And the conflict did not disappear for the disciples as they went out into the world to do the work the Holy Spirit had empowered them to do. Most of them, in fact, would endure great hardship and suffering for the sake of the one who had called them in the first place. And so it is for us. Today, Pentecost Sunday, is a great day of celebration and Calvary Church sure knows how to throw a party. But when the party is over, the work, the sharing of good news in whatever way is uniquely given to you, to me, the work awaits. My prayer for you and for myself, is that our hearts stay open enough to the Spirit that beckons us today and always. Amen. Amen. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates, or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.